Good morning to you all. I hope you're in Matthew 24. We're going to be there in just a moment. October 1st, 1939, World War II was barely a month old. Uh, the, the Nazis had swept into Poland from the west, and two weeks later, the Soviets came in from the east, and Poland didn't stand a chance. And on October 1st, again, barely a month in, William Churchill, the quotable prime minister from England, was asked about Russia's involvement. It was pretty unexpected that they got involved that quick. And he said this, he said, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And ever since that time, this famous phrase has been used uh, to describe that which is so dense and complicated that it is totally indecipherable, impossible to foretell. Now, if you read through Matthew 24 this week and discussed it with your home group, you may feel like this chapter is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. This is a hard chapter. I want to be honest with you. If you had trouble with interpreting this passage this week, you are not alone. Don't, don't be afraid. These words of Jesus have flummoxed casual readers and uh, learned scholars alike for generations. And uh, we're committed around here to teaching the whole counsel of God. We're not going to shy away from hard passages Um, We're not going to skip them and go back to the next thing that feels uh, less complicated. Um, Two things, though, I want to encourage us, both for preachers and for people who listen to preachers alike. When we come to passages like this, I want to contend that we need to listen with humility and hopefulness. Humility in the sense that the things that the scriptures teach on uh, loud and clearly that, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to die for our sins, that he rose again from the dead for our justification, that he is coming again to judge the whole world and to bring salvation. Um, these are the things that we should speak loudly and confidently on and give our amen to them, right? Yeah, and where the scripture is maybe more difficult to understand, more debated uh, in its interpretation by faithful scholars, we, we should be hold these things more loosely and humbly, and I, I want to tell you, I've put in a lot of time this week reading a lot of different interpretations of this. I'm going to give it my best shot, um, but if at the end of the day you think, eh, I don't like something he said, we can still be friends, okay? Um, now, I, I should tell you, uh, we've had a stomach bug going on in our house, and that's why I just kind of came in right before this, and I'm going to leave right after this, so if you have critique, criticisms of my sermon, you're going to have to email them instead um, to benji at sbcommunity.org, okay? Um, so do with that what you want. All right, so th- t- today might feel a little less sermon and more like seminary course, so you ready to put on the thinking caps a little bit? Let's, let's dig in. We can do this. So it starts uh, in verse 1. I'm, let me remind you, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. In two days, Jesus is going to be dragged before a trial, condemned, tortured, and die. Um, this is all coming very quickly. He's just had this, this kind of harsh interaction with his adversaries in the temple, and now he is leaving the temple, and this is, this is what happens. Uh, chapter 24, verse 1. As uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? 
Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's a big deal. Let's pause there. So Jesus is saying, the end is near. Uh, in Mark's account of this, the disciples come to him and they say, what wonderful stones, what marvelous buildings. They are in awe of this, this, the human accomplishment that the temple is. Now, let's just go back in time real quick. The first temple was built by King Solomon around 950 B.C., torn down by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 70 years later, the exiles come back and they, they rebuild the temple, much less glorious one than the first, but Zerubbabel helps lead that in about 515 BC. So when Jesus is speaking, this is more than 500 years after the second temple has been uh, rebuilt. Now, some of you may have houses right now that you're thinking about remodeling the bathroom or something. It's maybe it's been 50, 60 years since your bathroom or kitchen has been redone. This has been 500 years, okay? So this is like, needs more than a little fix up. This needs like an overhaul um, here and that's exactly what's happening. At the time Jesus is having this interaction, this conversation with his disciples, Herod the Great began this renovation of the temple 46 years earlier and it's gonna keep going on for 30 years. This is such a big project that 18,000 men were working full time on this. It's a big deal. Now, it's, it's huge in scope. Kai, if you can bring down the lights for me uh, briefly. Um, this is what the temple complex looked like at the time of, of Jesus. This outer court uh, surrounded an area that was about six football fields in area. It's huge. And at the center, of course, was this beautiful structure, the temple itself, gleaming limestone covered in uh, golden uh, areas there. And, and it is just marvelous and massive. Um, this is a picture, kind of hard to see, but when I went uh, to Jerusalem with Steve Jolly in 2011, um, this is one of the foundation stones that, that is adjacent to the Western Wall. Everything from this side of the screen all the way to where you can barely see Steve's head down there is one massive stone. Some of them weighed up to 70 tons per stone. And so you can imagine just the manpower it took to, to build something of this magnitude. Now, by the way, all of this uh, conversation is taking place from the Mount of Olives where I shot this picture, looking across the Kidron Valley and where the Dome of the Rock stands now, that is the Temple Mount. That's where the temple was. It's only a 30-minute or so walk to the other side. So um, here's just a little bonus one of me making Steve Jolly feel uncomfortable there. Um, so... Anyhow, okay, you can bring the lights back up there. But it is impossible to overstate the significance of, of the temple to the Jews of that day. It was not just a sacred place to pray and offer sacrifices and do religious duties. It was at the center of the Jewish national identity, of their civic, religious, political life, all right there. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. That's, a, that's pretty incredible news. Now, I want to pause here and say there's a lesson here for us, a really important lesson. The disciples are asking him, they're wowed by this temple. They are in awe, like I said, of the human achievement of what had been built there. And, you know, we're not all that different from that. We're impressed by a lot of things that are, are not going to last 
Jesus says, all that glitters is not gold. Don't be so impressed by things that have fleeting glory that are very temporary. Think of some of the things that we're impressed regularly by. How many likes or followers somebody has. Uh, Athletic achievements of people whose bodies are, are going to be weak in not too many years. Big bank accounts, status, power, sex appeal. Uh, cool vacations, experiences like that. And Jesus wants to say, like the temple, these things are destined for the scrap heap. Now, ironically, uh, the more we become impressed by the things of this world, the less impressive our lives actually become. When we fixate on shallow things, our lives lives become shallow. But when we fix our eyes on things that are eternal, the things of God, well, the more impressive our lives actually become as we become transformed into God's likeness. That is his purpose for us. So will you just pause with me and pray, oh Lord, help us be impressed by the right things, things that are eternal and lasting things that are going to make a difference forever. Amen. Okay, we got to keep going because we got a lot to, to deal here. So Jesus says, it's all coming down, and they ask a very understandable question. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, Here's where it starts to get a little complicated. In their minds, they cannot conceive of something so massive like the temple itself being demolished. And so in their minds, the destruction of the temple, which happened in the first century, and Jesus coming again in the end of the age are one event. Jesus knows that they are two events separated by centuries, and so his answer to their question is gonna be more complicated than they can understand. Now, there are four schools of thought when in understanding Jesus' answer to them, to that question, when and what's going to be the sign. Some people think that everything that we're going to look at today, I'm only going to have time to get through verse 35 today, but some people believe that everything up to verse 35 is primarily about the destruction of the temple in the first century. Some people believe that it's primarily about the end of the world when Jesus comes back. Some people think Jesus is talking a little bit about this and a little bit about that, and others think that Jesus has both of them in mind, kind of like a near mountain and a far mountain looking out uh, across into the future. Now, I think that last one, there's something to be said for it, but I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table. I think primarily Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. That's where he started. All this is coming down. And he, the, the most clear answer to his question, when, comes in verse 34. Will you look at that? He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So I'm reading that, all this in the context of Jesus addressing that, that first question. And like I said, if you disagree with me, we can still be friends. But that's where I'm going to go with this. So Jesus begins to unpack this. And he says, his first part of the answer is, don't panic yet. Now, just think of this. If Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed and they think the end of the world is coming, Jesus immediately wants to settle them down and say, don't freak out every time you see something you think could be an indication. So in verse 4, he says, let's read it, look at it together. 
Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So what I think he's doing here is saying all these events are going to happen. Uh, messianic pretenders, verse 5. There's going to be, verse 6, wars, rumors of wars. The temple age is not yet ending. Verse 7, uh, earthquakes, famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. I remember when, when uh, my wife was pregnant with our first son, sitting right over there. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, we, took, we took Lara into the hospital, and they sent us home. They said, not yet. It's not coming yet. <laughs> I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Not yet. Um, these verses have been understood through in many times by end time specialists as indicators that the end of the world is coming. Uh, my, I have in, in my home office a, one of my grandmother's Bibles. It was called a chronological Bible. And when it said chronological, not just in, in line with that, it had at the beginning dates of everything, including the day on which creation happened. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, these people are pretty confident of uh, their timeline. But in that Bible was a little pamphlet, and some of you who are old enough may remember this pamphlet. It was put out in the 80s called 88 Reasons the Rapture is in 1988. <laughs> Jesus is coming in 88. Now, reasons 78 to 81 all had to deal with verses 5 to 7 here. Wars, earthquakes, uh, you know, famines, that kind of stuff. Um, they're missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Even if you think these verses are about the second coming of Christ, what Jesus is saying here is exactly the opposite of that kind of end time speculation. He's saying these things are not to be taken as signs that the end is right around the corner. That's, don't panic yet. Now in verses nine to 14, whoops, we're not quite there yet, nine to 14, Jesus uh, continues talking about what they should expect in the days and decades to come. Let's read it. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. What I think Jesus is saying here is that the normal expectation of his believers in the years to come, and ours as well, should be life will be hard. There will be sufferings, persecutions, trials for his followers. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. In the years to come, there were trials and suffering and persecutions. In those years leading up to the destruction of the temple, his followers did indeed find themselves suffering in many ways. The promise in verse 13, look at it again, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is not a promise that anyone will be saved from death by, by being faithful, 
but rather if they endure to the end of their life, if we endure to the end of our life, we will be saved, not from death, but through death. This is a resurrection promise here. So what do we make of verse 14? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a testimony of the nations, and then the end will come. Is this saying that Jesus will not come back until certain events in history, certain people hear the gospel message? I don't believe so. Um, <clears throat> some places in the New Testament, excuse me, there we go. I think I'm good now. It's so great to stand in front of a group of people and just clear your throat. And, uh, <laughs> in some places in the New Testament, like Romans 16, um, this is spoken of, the gospel reaching the nations has already happened. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations. So there's a way of seeing that, that, again, in the book of Acts, the gospel was spreading and on Pentecost the nations came and they heard the gospel preached. Okay, step to the side for a moment. This is important you hear this. I am not saying that world evangelization is not important and should not be a priority for us today. For this very reason, because it is so important, I was just thinking about the last two months of church life and we've, the people that we've had stand right here and talk about the gospel going to the nations. January 1st, Merrill Dick stood here and shared about he, he and Teresa going to a tribal people in South America to bring the gospel. That is good. A couple weeks later, we had our friends from IFES share about how the gospel is going in the Middle East to tough places like Syria and Yemen and Turkey. This is important work. In the, the weeks after that, we had uh, people like the Whitings share about Mission Aviation Fellowship, Rolf at the Rescue Mission, Mary Larson talked about the gospel going to Thailand. Just last week, Charles and Bev uh, Cole stood here and shared about the work they're doing to bring the gospel to Muslims in France, and we want to be behind that. That is important work. Amen? Okay. But throughout this section, what I think Jesus is doing is he's encouraging his, fo his followers in the day days and years to come. <clears throat> I'm not becoming for clumps, really. <clears throat> in the days and years to come, to hang in there and continue to be faithful witnesses. Up to this point, though, there's been no special sign like they asked for that would indicate the end of the temple age. But that's about to change in verse 15. Okay, again, heavy thinking here. You ready? You still with me? You still with me? Okay, thank you. Um, okay, let's look at verse 15 and following. It says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Thank you. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take, uh, not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be on winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. 
but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So look at that. We've got water coming from all places. I love it. Thank you, Heidi. That's all right. I'm happy for that. Mm. Your water was cold. You love me more than... Uh, God knows. Oh. All right. <clears throat> so in order to understand, again what I think he's warning against, the coming destruction of the temple, we need some historical context that's very important. Jesus is drawing on the memory of a, a national nightmare. This abomination of desolation was understood by Jews in that day to be a reference to something that came true in the second century BC. Now, Again, we need some little historical context. You've all heard of Hanukkah. While we're celebrating Christmas, the Jews are celebrating Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Hanukkah is a celebration. It's a remembrance of God's deliverance of the Jewish people in the second century BC. This is, story is not in the Bible, by the way. This is between the Testaments. What happened at that time, there was a, a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes, bad guy, who brought his armies down and they invaded Israel. They took over Jerusalem. He wanted to abolish the Jewish faith. And so he, he abolished the, he said, you can't practice the Sabbath anymore. Um, and he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple. More than that, he sacrificed pigs, unclean animal, on the temple altar. I mean, just unbelievable desecration of, of the Jewish holy place. Jesus, uh, by the way, this uh, came to a, a remarkable conclusion. There was a, a Jewish hero named Jewish, uh, Judas Maccabeus who came in, kicked out Antiochus and his, his forces, and liberated the people. He rededicated, reconsecrated the temple. That's what Hanukkah means, a dedication or consecration. And the people experienced God's salvation. What Jesus, I think, is doing here is he's, he's taking the quintessential Jewish nightmare and, and extending it to cosmic proportions. That's the words of uh, author Hank Hanegraaff, but I think he's right. Jesus is, is, is calling on what they remember happening in the uh, centuries before, and he's saying something like that is going to happen again, but it's going to be even worse this time. And their minds couldn't even fathom what could be worse than that. Look at verse 21 again. For there will be great tribulation such, has, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be again. This sounds very much like what we read in, um, in Exodus chapter 11. It says, uh, declaring judgment on Egypt. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt such as this there has never been nor will there be again. In the same way that Egypt was going to fall under judgment, so too, Jesus is saying, Israel will fall under judgment as well. Now, friends, what Jesus declared was coming happened in the year 70 AD. After a four-year war between the Jewish people and the Romans, the Romans finally laid siege to Jerusalem, and after five months, they, they destroyed the temple and much of the city as well. And this time, it was not just the blood of pigs that ran in Jerusalem. It was the blood of, of Jews. This time, it was not just the Holy of Holies that was merely desecrated by the defiling statue of a pagan god. This time, the, the entire temple was fully torn down by the greed of Roman soldiers looking for gold. 
And this time, there would be no Jewish savior to intervene and save the day. Jesus saying, within a generation, the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. Now, we know from historians of that day that when this happened, people from the surrounding areas ran to the temple fortress to look for safety from the Roman armies. And that is exactly what Jesus says not to do in verse 16 and 17. He's saying, get out of town. When you see these things happen, there is going to be no salvation from this disaster. It's going to be final and ultimate. Now, if any part, I'm sure some of you who think this is about the second coming, which is fine, if you think that is the case, you're thinking, if any part of this is about the second coming, it's verses 29 to 31. Let's read that together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be, uh, heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes on the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. How do we understand this stuff? Again, this is littered with Old Testament allusions and we need to understand it in its context. This idea of the sun and the moon and the stars uh, going dark and falling to the earth sound a lot like some of the other things we see in the Old Testament. Like Isaiah chapter 13, this is a, a judgment oracle on the nation of Babylon. God's, uh, the people of God's enemies. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. This is not, I would say, a, a, a uh, prediction of the end of the world to the Babylonians. Rather, this is the uh, declaration that catastrophic judgment is coming on that nation. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying is coming on the nation of Israel. What about the coming of the Son of Man? Well, we need to understand that in verse 30 in light of Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is what Daniel says in chapter 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's a beautiful picture, but let me ask you a question. Which direction is the Son of Man coming is he ascending to heaven or descending to the earth? Now, the Ancient of Days in his throne room is in the heavens. The Ancient of Days is God. And so here, the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days. My understanding of this is, this is a picture of the Son of Man, this glorious one, ascending to God, not descending. And this is, I think, what we'll see in Matthew 26 in a few weeks the high priest at Jesus' trial says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you have said so. But I say to you, 
From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This, I know this is hard stuff, but stay with me. Jesus, I think here, is not talking to those who condemned him about the end of the world, but rather he's employing Old Testament symbolism to prophesy that they were the ones who were gonna be condemned. They would see his prophecy come true in just a matter of decades when the temple was destroyed and know truly that he indeed had ascended at his ascension to the right hand of God and sits there with power to execute judgment upon the earth. Now all of this ends in in, uh, verse 32 to 35 after he said, okay, here it gets ugly. He's saying, count on it now. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other other words, just as you see the budding leaves sign that summer's on its way, so they should be able to discern the indications that what Jesus said about the temple is gonna come true. Now, verse 33, he says, so also when you see these things, you know that blank is near. Now, in your Bible, it might say he is near, but that could very well also be translated, it is near. If we understand that, this is the destruction of the temple at the very gates. And so then he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Bank on what I am saying. Okay, exhale, breathe, release, okay. Bible study, done. Uh, That was hard work, was it not? Question for you, why should you care? (laughs) If something that was prophesied and already came true almost 2,000 years ago, uh, if that's what all this is about, why should you care? What difference does it make to you and to me? I think there's a really important answer that I hope you pay attention to. This passage, as I understand it, this prophecy reveals not that Jesus is just a fortune teller, a a looking into the future one. Rather, he is not just foreseeing the future, he is the shaper of the future. Jesus was not just a victim of history, he is the Lord of history. He was in complete, complete control even as he was being handed over to death. Just as he foretold the future to his disciples, the fate of the temple and the suffering that awaited them, so too, Jesus is in control of your future. Jesus is in control of your present and your future because he is the Lord of history. Now, I I don't know all your stories in here, but I know a lot of your stories, and I know that in a room like this, there is a lot of suffering There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of anxiety about days to come. Some of you are sick. Some of you are grieving deep loss. Some of you have been abused. Some of you are are deeply lonely. There's so much in this fallen world that leaves us feeling overwhelmed and out of control. And Matthew 24 reminds us that we are not alone, that history is not something that happens to us. Rather, we are held in the hands of the one who controls everything in the world. 
We're gonna sing this in just a moment, but I want us to just read it. Listen to it. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. I want to give us just a moment of quiet uh, to think of ourselves as being held in the hands of God, the one who holds your past, your present, your future. This is the one who knows you and loves you. This is the one who is going to die for you. So let's just offer to God in silence anything that we're feeling right now, any anxiety, any troubles, any gratitudes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your power, for your knowledge, for your wisdom, for your mercy and your compassion. Our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, you paid fully for our sins and that nothing can come to us except through our Father's hand. Lord, help us to trust you in the days to come with the things that make us uncomfortable, the things about which we have questions and anxieties. We, we give those things to you and we ask that you would help us to live in trusting obedience, patiently, faithfully, witnessing to the goodness of our great Savior. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, our passage today was... I would contend about the impending judgment of the temple, but each one of us must stand before the judgment seat of God as well. And the good news is that the judge came in the middle of history and he offered himself for us for as our substitute so that we not, might not be in fear of judgment, that we might know his mercy and compassion. On the cross, he endured the judgment of God for our sake the judge wants to be your savior. Do you know him? On the night he was betrayed, he, he instituted this meal so that we might remember. What a gracious thing he did. Not just words, but, but actual physical things to help remind us by senses of taste and touch, to help stir our memories and remind us that he is for us and not against us. This bread, of course, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you do this, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he will come again, friends. You know that, right? So let's come. If you know him, come with thanksgiving that your, your debt has been paid. We're in, we've been reconciled to the Father through Christ. If you don't know him, the, the, the door is open to you. And watch as a bunch of people stream down to this table to recognize they're before you and before God that we need Christ.